Uh, it is my joy this morning to introduce, as I had alluded to in my prayer, Ken, Ken Horton. He has served as a space surveillance officer in the Air Force uh, while stationed in Turkey. And then after this, in was, uh, Ken was the senior pastor at McKinney Memorial Bible Church in Fort Worth for 23 years. And he served as an adjunct teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary, where he also earned his Ph.D., and he was also the chaplain of the TCU football um, team for 20 years. He's also a good friend of Grant. And uh, so we're praying that uh, with the loss of Oregon to TCU, that their friendship can be restored. You'll hear more about that later. And we're still worshiping God. Good. Um, since March of 2011, uh, Ken and his wife, Kathy, have uh, ministered with Ministry Catalysts, focusing on one-on-one discipleship, mentoring younger pastors, as well as teaching at Dallas Seminary and in strategic nations all around the world. Ken also serves on the Board of Regents at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Ken and Kathy have two children as well as, as, well as two grandchildren. So join me in welcoming Ken this morning. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to see that Ryan and his family are here. We've been praying for this strategic staff position for a number of months, along with Grant and the leaders here, and so that's a thrill, and I appreciate Craig's leadership of our worship. I particularly like that song, God is Able. And as we begin a new year, that's an important thing for us to keep in mind every step of the way. I heard from Grant last night before the game, and he was relishing the thought of a Oregon Duck victory. At about 28 to nothing, I declared that they had won the victory and celebrated with him, not with great enthusiasm, but as a good friend. Did not hear from him the rest of the game, though. So, uh, uh, But this he's already experienced in the second day of the year something all of us will experience, and that will be unmet expectations. Reminds me of a New Year's story. Max and Jenny were a couple in their late 40s. Their kids were finally grown, and they were going to have a New Year's Eve party with their friends. Jenny woke up on New Year's Eve, and she turned to Max, and she said, I just dreamed that you gave me a diamond ring for New Year's. What do you think this means? Now, some husbands would have been flustered by that, but Max just smiled broadly, and he said, You'll get your answer tonight. Well, she spent the day. The obvious conclusion is one of those rings they've been seeing on those hundreds of commercials during Christmas was going to be her blessing that night. So she got a manicure, put on her nicest dress. They went to the party, had great time with their friends, great food, all the celebration. As they dimmed the lights just before midnight, he gave her a box, a little bit bigger than she'd expected. But she tore the wrapping paper off the box and looked in, and she couldn't quite focus because of the dim light, but finally she realized it was a book. And then she noticed, as she looked more closely, it had a title. And the title of the book was The Meaning of Dreams. Her husband had answered her question, but had not met her expectations. Husbands have a tendency to do that on occasion. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a passage of Scripture that will help you deal with the year that lies ahead. 
in a way that will honor God and bring joy to your life, even when your expectations are not met in the circumstances of life. The psalm is Psalm 85. Turn with me, if you will, to that passage, Psalm 85, written by uh, the sons of Korah. Korah, of course, was famous in ancient Israeli Jewish history. Uh, He had been a Levite. His family was responsible for taking care of the utensils in the tabernacle that were involved in worship. A very important job. But in number 16, he and some folks from the tribe of Reuben decided they ought to be able to offer sacrifices like the sons of Aaron. And so they revolted against Aaron and Moses. Moses very wisely said, let's let God decide who can offer sacrifices. So Korah and his friends burned incense, which was the privilege of the descendants of Aaron. The earth opened up, the fire came down, and they were destroyed. Not a a very honorable ancestor. But not all the sons of Korah were destroyed. Some of them were too young or too wise to join the rebellion. And in time, they made a great contribution to Israel. Samuel was a descendant of Korah, the great judge. Some of David's mighty men, warriors, were descendants of Korah. And there was a group, Heman and his descendants, that wrote psalms. And we have 25 of the psalms of Korah in the book of Psalms. Psalm 85 is the last of those 25 psalms. It's a national psalm. It's an important psalm that you and I could reflect on as we pray for our nation in the year that lies ahead as we elect new leadership. But it's a psalm that has significance for a church, particularly a church like Fellowship Bible Church that is building a new building to enlarge their impact for Christ in this area and around the world. And it's an important passage for families and individuals who want to enjoy the blessing of God in the year that lies ahead. Turn with me now and let's read this passage. I want you to stand. I'll read it for you. Stand so that you can give your full attention to these 13 verses. Psalm 85. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Please be seated. 
This psalm has three stanzas. Verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 9, and then verses 10 to 13. In verses 1 to 3, we discover, as the psalmist writes, that we have much to be grateful for as we consider how God has dealt with us. Though it's not certain the timing of this psalm, my view is that this was written after the people had returned from exile in about 500 B.C. They had been told in Deuteronomy 28, if you revolt against God, if you do not obey him, you will be sent into exile. Jeremiah 25 says you're going to be going into exile for 70 years. Daniel 9, Daniel prays and says, God, it's been 70 years. When are we going back to the land? And I think now they're back in the land and the descendants of Korah who were writing psalms write this psalm about God's dealings with Israel as he's brought them back. The word for regathering and returning is used repeatedly throughout this psalm. And in verses 1 to 3, we're encouraged to look back with gratitude to God for his abundant goodness. Two things that we see in these three verses. First of all, in verse 1, we see that God has shown favor to the land. Not to the land physically, but to those who were living in the land. Because from the Jewish perspective, the land was the place of God's blessing. And this favor certainly had a tangible dimension. And for you and me, as we look back on 2015, God has shown goodness to us through his provision. Acts 14, 17 says, if you've experienced the rain, the sun, the fruitfulness of the land, the blessing that is a part of living in this earthly existence, you have been given a good gift from God. In fact, James 1, 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Everything you and I have enjoyed comes from the hand of God. If we know Christ... We have a perspective on that goodness. If you don't know Christ, if you've enjoyed it, God gave it to you. He has blessed you. He has shown you his kindness and his goodness during the, the days of this past year. We have a great tradition in our nation to have a day of thanksgiving. But I would encourage you to use every day as an opportunity to express your gratitude to God. But not just in the tangible realm, not just in the ways that he cares for us in this existence, but in the spiritual realm. The word that's used for favor is a word that indicates spiritual affection. It means to be pleased with. Deuteronomy 7, he says, I didn't choose you because you were great and mighty. I chose you because I loved you, period. That delight, that desire to be a blessing to these people comes not from us deserving it but from God choosing to be a blessing and delighting in us as his children my first grandson my second grandchild was born on Monday and we've been praying for him for several months and when you hold that grandbaby in your arms and you grandparents know this you just you just begin to think of all the ways that you want to be a blessing to them. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. 
I have not said no to her yet. Someday I might have to, but I'm not looking forward to that. Because I delight in her. I want to be a blessing to her. Now, God is not a grandfather. He will say no to us. But he has affection for us that starts with his heart of love and that brings blessing to us as his children. You and I have so much to be grateful for. Second Peter chapter 1 says that we've received everything we need for life and godliness through our faith in Christ. Ephesians 1 says we've been given every spiritual blessing through faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I ought to day by day be filled with gratitude for how God has shown us this kindness and goodness. But not only that, he says in verses 2 and 3, we need to experience God's forgiveness. He says, God forgave the iniquity of our sin. The word for forgive means to lift up, to take away. As far as the east is from the west, as it says in Psalm 103. It says he covered our sin. Isaiah 61 says that we've been clothed in the righteousness of God. God not only covered the guilt of our sin with the blood of Christ, but he clothed us with the righteousness of Christ through our identity and our union with him. What an incredible blessing that you and I have received through our forgiveness. As Ryan mentioned, we have no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. And if you've taken the ball and chain of guilt from 2015 into 2016, you've done so, done so because you've chosen to not avail yourself of the blessing of cleansing and forgiveness for those who confess their sin. Paul tell, or, or the sons of Korah, rather, in this verse, tell us that we have the opportunity to experience God's forgiveness. I often tell the guys that I disciple that we should not practice drive-by confession. By that I mean, I did it, I'm sorry, let's stop thinking about it. And just rush past that confession. Because confession isn't just saying you did it. Confession is agreeing with God. Agreeing that Christ had to die for what you did. Agreeing that if it was the only sin that was ever committed, he would have had to die for that sin. Agreeing that because he died for that sin, it's paid for completely. And there's no barrier, no distance between you and God because of that sin. Because it has been removed by the blood of Christ. Agreeing with God that God's forgiveness does not remove the temporal consequences of our sin. But through his grace, he will help us deal with the consequences of our sin in a way that can honor Christ, even in the midst of our frailty and our mistake. And as we linger at the cross and agree with God, God stirs up gratitude for all that it means to have a relationship with his son. He then goes on in verses two, 3 and tells us that we need to... He says, you withdrew all your fury. You turned aside your fierce anger. You see, God's covering of our sin does not diminish the significance of our sin. Because it took the death of his son to satisfy, to propitiate the wrath of God towards sin. In order for him to deal with our sin once and for all through Christ on the cross. Anytime you and I minimize the significance of the wrath of God towards sin, we marginalize 
the significance of the death of Christ on the cross. We live in a world that doesn't want to talk about God's wrath towards sin. God's too loving to really hate sin. That's just not the picture the Bible presents. In fact, God is so holy and righteous that he was willing to send his son as our substitute to die on the cross so that when Christ hung on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us and the wrath of God upon sin was poured out upon him so that his son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you and I have our gratitude for God stimulated by appreciating his favor and kindness, by experiencing his forgiveness, we experience great blessings. Here's some of the reasons this is important. First of all, gratitude is the renewable fuel for a life that's pleasing to God. The psalmist says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it is. But the fuel of sustained obedience to God is gratitude for what Christ did for us on the cross. That gratitude is the fuel that pleases God and encourages us to follow God. Secondly, gratitude is the blessing of God in protecting us from materialism. We've just gone through a month or six weeks in which we have been bombarded with things that somebody else tells us we need to be happy. Jenny was thinking about that diamond ring because she had seen a hundred commercials about it. And when you and I focus our attention on the cross, and from that begin to be generous with what God's provided for us, it protects us from the materialism that will destroy any hope of contentment in this life. And so this is an important part of enjoying God's blessing in the year ahead. Allow God to stimulate gratitude on a daily basis as you walk with Christ. Secondly, in verses 4 to 9, we are called to look up with humility before God. The sons of Korah emphasize this in earlier Psalms. In Psalm 42, it says, As the deer longs for the water brook, so my soul longs for you. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And the path of humility will consistently do two things. It will exalt God's character and it will embrace God's truth. Teddy Roosevelt was not known as a man of great humility, but he did something that perhaps made him more humble than he would have been otherwise. On a regular basis, whether he was at his home in New York's Sagamore Hill or during the years when he was in the White House, after he would have a dinner with friends, they would go out on the lawn and they would walk out and in silence, Teddy Roosevelt would begin to look at the stars. And because he was always the leader of the pack, everybody else began to look at the stars. And after several minutes, Teddy Roosevelt would say something like this. We are small enough now, we can go get some sleep. You see, it's important for us to be reminded that compared to God, we're small. We need to live in that place between John 15 and Philippians 4. 
John 15 says, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Philippians 4 says, in Christ, I can do all things. Humility is not looking down on yourself as someone who's insignificant or meaningless, but rather seeing yourself the way God sees you. God sees you as a workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he's prepared for you as you depend upon his strength step by step. And that humility that you and I need is encouraged and strengthened when we exalt God's character. Verses 4 to 7, he tells us four things about God's character. He says that God is the God of salvation. Ephesians 1, as I've mentioned, says the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, and the Spirit sealed us. Paul is relentlessly Trinitarian as he exalts the salvation that our amazing God has provided for us. The God of salvation. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. Maybe you're here because a parent or a grandparent or a friend invited you and you were going to go to the gym yesterday and come to church today and sort of get off on a good start with the new year. If you've never trusted Christ, improving your church attendance will not deal with your spiritual needs. Trying to do better morally won't really change the direction of your life long term. Your starting point for a new year, if you don't know Christ, is to receive the gift of salvation that only can be provided through Christ's death on the cross. God created you to enjoy intimate fellowship with you. You're sinful like all the rest of us, and no matter how we try to deal with our sin issue by religion or morality, we all fall short. And it was only through what Christ did on the cross that God is now free to be just and the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Christ. And if you will personally receive that gift of salvation, God says that you become his child. He'll begin a good work in you that he will finish through Jesus Christ. That's the starting point for you. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, that person who invited you, that person that you know pretty sure has a growing relationship with Christ, one of the leaders here at this church, the most important thing you can do today or tomorrow is find somebody who can help you sort through what it means to begin a relationship with God as you learn what it means to really exalt God's character because He is the God of salvation. He's the God of righteous wrath. Whenever a psalmist repeats something, that means it's important. He's already brought that up in verse 3. He brings it up again in uh, verse 5. And then in verse 6, he's the God of joy. See, God wants to give us joy. And the only way you and I can experience the joy for which he has created us is to be a partner with him in the things that he considers important. When you choose to try to satisfy yourself on your terms, it's like drinking salt water. It will momentarily quench your thirst, but it'll rot your gut. And when you and I try to satisfy ourselves on our terms, it is always destructive in our lives. The God of joy. God delights in us. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that he sings over us, just like I sing over my grandchildren. God delights in us. And because he delights in us, when you and I do and follow the patterns that he's called us to follow, he shares 
his joy with us. And then he says he's the God of loving kindness. Chesed. Perfect faithfulness. You can count on God. You can count on God to to do what he says, to finish what he starts, to be faithful to his promises. And in every way, we have a God who we can trust. Because of his faithfulness, we have security. Because of his purpose, we have significance. And every person you know wants to live a life where there's a bedrock of security and a clear direction of significance in their life. And then he tells us in verses 8 and 9 that if we're going to have real humility, it's going to show itself as we obey and embrace God's truth. He says, hear what God will say. He will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. You see, God gives us wisdom. He wants to give us direction. He is eager to help us know what we should do. When you study the word of God, God is giving you truth. Some of that truth puts you on the the path of righteousness. Some of that truth rebukes you. Some of that truth corrects you. Some of that truth will strengthen your ability to, to be useful to him. And as God works in our lives and as he accomplishes his purpose through his word in our lives, and as we obey him, we experience his wisdom. James 1, 22 and 23 says, Do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. Just a few verses before that, in in verses 5 to 7, he says, Ask God for wisdom, and he'll give it to you without reproach. And then in the next couple of verses, he says, Don't be double-minded. Don't be like a person who hears the word and doesn't do the word, because if you do, you'll be like a ship tossed on the sea. Now, a double-minded person is the person who says, God, I want to know what you say, And then I'll decide if I'm going to do it. I'll make the choice after you give me the clear direction. And when we do that, and we choose the wrong direction, we become spiritually nauseated. It is a miserable way to live. What you and I need to do as we follow Christ is to have preemptive obedience. God, you show me what to do, and I will obey. And God loves to give wisdom to people from his word who are eager to obey him. Because when we obey God, we're saying, God, you're God and I'm not. You're wise and I need wisdom. When we disobey God, what are we saying? This time I'm smarter than God. Sounds pretty foolish, doesn't it? And yet that's exactly what we do every time we disobey God. You see, obedience to God brings blessing. It brings wisdom. It brings joy. But disobedience, if you're God's child, brings discipline. When I was about eight years old, my dad was generally taking me and my two brothers to the grocery store on Saturday morning where he would buy the groceries. My mother and my baby sister were at home getting a little rest, getting ready for the weekend. And on this particular day, Saturday morning... My friend Mac Broom and his wife, his mother was there. And so Mac and I were playing. Our parents, his, his mom, my dad were gr- shopping for groceries. And they had a tuna can pyramid. And you show me eight-year-old boys and they have just one question when they see a tuna pan, can, 
pyramid. How many of those cans can we take out before it falls? I don't know if it was eight cans or ten cans, but when it fell, the stock boy came around the, the, the corner with fire in his eyes. Mr. Green, Mr. King, the, the owner, was exasperated. Matt's mother yelled. My dad didn't say a word. He came over, grabbed me by the, you know that nerve right here that can really just sort of shut you down? He grabbed me by that nerve, jerked me up, said something about don't get six inches away from me the rest of the morning. And then he said these terrible words, we'll deal with this when we get home. I knew that was bad news. I don't know how long it took for us to get in the car, but in the car, I, my mind was wheeling. I said, man, I got to do something to deflect the attention here. And so I turned to my dad and I said, dad, Mac did it too. And you're not even mad at Mac. My dad did not look at me. He just kept driving. He says, Mac is not my son. Very important principle. If you're God's child and you disobey God, that will be the most miserable pathway you can choose. Because he loves you so much, he will discipline you. Not only will the consequences of your sin be painful, but the discipline of God will multiply that, that difficulty. And the worst way you and I can live in 2016 is to live in disobedience to God's word. Because when we do, we are saying, God, I'm smarter than you are. Humility. Really critical. The humility to honor God, the humility to obey God. Let me just make a couple of comments about humility. First of all, humility is not optional. It is not optional. It is inevitable. You will either humble yourself or God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. But if you refuse to humble yourself, God will bring you down. Now, I've tried both of those things in my 64 years. And I want to just give you a word of testimony. Humbling yourself is a much better way to live. Because you're going to be humble no matter what. And it's just so much better to proactively bow before God and do what God says. Secondly, when it comes to humility, it is the path of joy and fulfillment. When you choose to do what God says, that is the best way to live life. Because God delights in lifting you up and blessing your life and using your life in ways that you couldn't even have dreamed of. As someone read from Ephesians chapter 3, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think. Gratitude for what God's done in the past. Humility before God day by day in the present. And then hope in God as we look forward. Verses 10 to 13. Verses 10 to 13 uh, tell us that there's two key things. First of all, we need to celebrate the certainty about our future. For the nation of Israel, there were national promises. There were eschatological truths that were that are going to be their blessing in the end times. There are spiritual blessings for those who obey God. They could be sure that what God had promised, He would be faithful to. Psalm 89, Amos 9, 
even after their disobedience and even after their exile, God tells them, I will be faithful to my promises. For you and I as believers, we've received promises that God will be faithful to. He said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He said he'll finish the good work within us that he started. He said that if we make if we uh, seek him and his righteousness, he'll give us all that we need, all that we all that he wants to provide for us. He has made promises to us that he will keep. He's made eternal promises. He's told you and me that we're going to have a body just like his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to be conformed to the image of his son. We're certain about the future because of the promises of God. He will be faithful to all his promises. Therefore, we need to celebrate the certainty of the future even when we're in the midst of all the uncertainty of the circumstances of this life. And when we do that, we don't lose heart. We may say, God, I don't know what's going to happen. I may die from this disease. I may not make it through this trauma. But I know this. You have prepared a place for me. And therefore, I can trust you in the midst of whatever the storm may be. Before I even met Grant, our teams played each other in the 2010 National Championship game. And my team won on a last-minute field goal. Auburn is my alma mater. And every now and then, ESPN will show replays of national championship games uh, from years past. Now, when I was going through that game, it was stressful. Because Auburn was making all kinds of mistakes. And man, my stomach was in a knot. I was so concerned about how it was going to all turn out. Later, now when I watch the replay, when we make a mistake, it doesn't even bother me. It doesn't stress me at all. I know we're going to win. Now, I'm pretty sure Grant never watches the replay because if you lose, you don't want to watch the replay. But for Auburn fans, that replay is just a wonderful experience because no matter how many terrible mistakes we made, we won. And what the psalmist is saying, if you've got a relationship with God, God is for you. Who can be against you? You win. Therefore, you can relax. You can be confident. You can have certainty in the midst of life's storms. And then finally, in verse 13, we get the opportunity to cultivate confidence in God step by step. He says, righteousness will go before him and he will make his footsteps into a way. Literally, it says he will set a way of steps. God's way is always best. And when you and I trust him step by step, he clears the path for us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You see, when your hope is in the Lord, he not only gives you confidence in the midst of the storm, he gives you Guidance, step by step. God delights in showing you the next step when you are living in obedience to what you already know. Verse 10 of this passage says, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Kathy and I always have a kiss on New Year's. Used to, we'd have a kiss midnight central time. 
Then for a few years, we had a kiss midnight Eastern time. I think we're moving toward the midnight Eastern Caribbean time pretty soon here. But a kiss is a great way to sort of start a new year. And what this passage is saying is that from God's perspective, there's this incredible kiss between righteousness and truth and loving kindness and peace. When you embrace God's righteousness and truth, you enjoy His loving kindness and peace. And the more you embrace righteousness and truth, the more you will enjoy His loving kindness and peace. That's the kind of year that I'm praying you will experience. A year in which gratitude shapes your perspective of what God's done for you in the past. In which humility is the distinctive of your day-by-day response to God's leadership and truth in His Word. And that hope will sustain you in the storms and encourage you to trust God step by step so that you will experience an incredible kiss, not just for New Year's, but for the whole year. That joining of righteousness and truth with peace and loving kindness in a relationship with God. Let's pray.